Hi, and welcome to the White Hill podcast series. My name is Roger. I'm one of the pastors here at White Hill, and we're glad that you've chosen to listen to one of the podcast messages today. Our prayer is that you would be challenged and inspired to take the next steps in your journey with God as you listen to this message. If you want to keep in touch with more things that are happening at White Hill, head to our website at whitehill.church and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Enjoy this message now. It's chapter 1, and this is the second message now in our Greater Than series, and we're looking at verse 15 through to 23 this morning. And it says this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy." For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Good morning, everyone. It is good to be here and good to be looking at God's Word together. Um, I uh, welcomed Julie back this morning and I was surprised because Julie technically is still on holidays. And uh, Julie uh, and I were talking and chatting with a couple of others and uh, Julie's idea of a holiday is very different to my idea of a holiday. Uh, Julie's idea of a holiday is, you know, having coffees, relaxing with a book, down at the winery, at the hunter, anyway, a whole bunch of things. For me, going on a holiday is an opportunity to go and have some fun. So that might be scuba diving, that, uh, and, sorry, I, I didn't mean it to say that Julie doesn't have fun. <laughs> Uh, it might be scuba diving. When I was younger, one of the things that I really enjoyed uh, was windsurfing. Uh, who's ever been windsurfing before? Uh, some people have. Good on you. Um, I had a, a windsurfer. It was a Bombora windsurfer when I was younger. This wasn't me. Um, <laughs> not that I didn't look like that. Um, but uh, yeah, and windsurfing was fantastic. And uh, you would there was a lake that was near our house that we would drive to, load the board up and everything on the roof. My older brother had a windsurfer as well. He always made sure he updated and got the one above mine. Um, But we had a a sail, it had the boom, had the mast. It would take us a little while to erect it all. And where we were on this lake was just perfect because the lake was sort of long and uh, it was probably about a K across the lake or so. But the wind would funnel down when it was blowing from the right direction. 
and you could just sail across the lake and back again. It was the perfect setup for windsurfing. Now, if you've ever, for those that have done windsurfing, you know that you jump on the board, there's a bit of balance involved to getting on the board in the right way, and then you've got your five metre, eight metre sail, depending on what the strength of the wind was, but a great wind was a 20 knot wind that would blow down the lake, you could stand up on the board, you could hang the sail just right, it would have a strap so you could hook into the harness, and you would just lean back and it would just take you for a rip of a ride. Now my board, when it got going at speed, it would get up on the plane and it would start humming. And so you just knew you were in the sweet spot when that happened. Now the problem comes when the wind picks up and wind isn't constant. It isn't like turning on our fan at home and uh, we can pick one, two or three on the channel indicator as to whether we want it high, low or medium. Sometimes it gusts. Sometimes it drops off. Now, if you're in a position and you're holding and you've got a nice 20 knot wind and it drops to 10 knots, all of a sudden you've fallen back uh, because you're putting too much lean into it. If the wind goes too much and you get a gust come through, all of a sudden, whereas you're standing there, uh, the wind will get a hold of your sail and it'll flip you all the way off your board over the top of the boom You'll land somewhere over the top. If you're still hooked into your harness, then you sort of wake up a little bit dazed in the water. Um, but it, it's not pleasant. On this one particular occasion, I was windsurfing down the lake and I'd gotten onto a nice reach. The problem was that I was going a little bit downwind. Uh, the wind was a little bit of an angle. And anyone that knows anything about sailing is if you go too far downwind, you then have to work really hard to get back up upwind again to where you started off with. It's great when you're running perpendicular to the wind, but if you're going down, then you've got to turn around and it's almost like you've got to sail up into a headwind, which is really difficult. Well, this one time, I've been sailing for a, a, about half an hour, going up and back and having a ripper of a time, got down and the, the wind just gusted up and it just flipped me and I went off into the water. The sail went down into the water. And then there are two ways that you can then get back on your board. You can either tread water and try and lift the boom up above your head with the sail above your head, try and catch a gust and let it pull you out of the water. Or you've got to stand up on the board and pull up the sail, the rope, and hoist this thing out of the water and then try and balance it back on the board. Both of which uh, are extremely tiring and exhausting. You can imagine a six metre sail when it goes under the water, it collects a huge amount of weight on top of it. And so to pull this thing out constantly uh, just puts so much physical strain on your shoulders and on your muscles that it is exhausting. And this one time after sailing that long, I wasn't in the best physical condition. Uh, not like I am now, no. Um, <laughs> I was down, I was in the water, I was down the lake, uh, too far down the lake, and I was just sitting in the water and I was just exhausted trying to lift the sail out. That was not going anywhere, so I jumped back up on the board trying to pull it up and fall in and pull it up and fall in. 
and I was just exhausted. And there's a part of me that is starting to have that little bit of the fear factor come in saying, I'm not getting back from this. <laughs> I am uh, drifting here and uh, no one, it's not like you can call up on the mobile phone for uh, a tow or anything like that. We're on a lake. Uh, there is maybe half a dozen windsurfers on the lake, but they were all further in where they should be. Uh, and here I am way down and there's a part of me that is almost at that point of thinking, uh, things are getting really, really bad now. <laughs> uh, I'm exhausted, I've got very little strength, and I'm sitting there in the water uh, with this sort of fear starting to come over me, thinking, how am I getting back from this? And uh, praise the Lord, <laughs> had the right gust, had the right wind, and I was able to get up and head back. But that thought of hopelessness that I had in the water, being so far downwind, I can still remember to this day, some 30 years after that actual event. Um, the passage we're looking at this morning is in Colossians chapter 1. And if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Colossians chapter 1, because this passage in Colossians is a ripper and one that we all need to learn from. And there's a reason that I want us all to learn from this passage in particular. And the reason is that in life, there are often so many difficulties that we experience. There are often times where we feel overwhelmed. Um, it may be uh, there, there are some family difficulties going on that we are struggling, that we've been unable to resolve or where everything seems to be crumbling around us. Um, perhaps there are study challenges that people are experiencing. I had study challenges when I was 18 and I didn't get the results I wanted to get into the course I wanted. Sometimes we have vocational situations that we are, feel overwhelmed by. Uh, it may be that the particular contract that you're on is ending. And there may be a sense of uncertainty about what the future holds. Sometimes there are financial struggles. And it just seems like bill after bill keep mounting up. Sometimes there are health challenges that come upon us. Perhaps there's been that doctor's diagnosis that something has shown up on a scan that we're uncertain about. Maybe we're in the middle of navigating the pathways of cancer. Maybe we're in the middle of navigating a whole bunch of other health issues. And then, of course, there are relational difficulties, such as the loss of a relationship of somebody that is close to you. Maybe the loss of a spouse. Chances are, though, that this morning you will have already experienced that sense of being overwhelmed in the past, maybe still now in the present, or if not any of those times, then chances are likely that you will at some point in the future. And the question I'm asking sort of as we look at this passage is to whom or to what will you turn in those times for help? Some seek comfort in food, some in drink, some in life pursuits. Uh, 
Some will turn to others for support and counsel, which is always very wise. Over the last four weeks in my foundations course with uh, the dozen people that we've got doing the course at the present, we've been looking at a, a bunch of theological issues and the one we looked at on Tuesday night was God's greatness and his goodness. And to be honest with you, uh, we were sprinting through this doctrine over the two hours and it was overwhelming but it was overwhelming in a positive way. And if there was anything that I could pray for you this morning, it would be that you would be overwhelmed by this passage in a positive way. Now, at the moment, that may not have been the case. But as we look at this, I want that to be the case for you as you walk away. Because this passage in Colossians is unique in the scriptures because unlike anywhere else, it presents for us seven characteristics of Christ that show him to be supreme, that show him to be so far above anyone else or anything else that we may know or understand, that it should give us a sense of overwhelming awe as to who Jesus is. There is no comparable listing found anywhere else in Scripture that groups them together in such a way as Colossians 1. Now, there are seven different characteristics. Now, usually I wouldn't put up all the points, but this morning I want you to get as much chance to get them as possible. So I'm putting them up. We don't have the time together to be able to go through them at the depth that I would love to sit down with you. So I'm going to group a couple of them together, try and sprint through them as best we can. And hopefully by the end of it, uh, you will be able to walk out of here saying, I have a great God. My Savior is just amazing. And if you're in the middle of going through difficult times at the moment, that you would be able to head out of here and say, God, thank you. Thank you that I am yours. Let me pray for us as we uh, dig into these passages. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for how much it teaches us and opens our eyes to your presence here in this place, to your characteristics and qualities that are so different to who we are. Father, open our eyes this morning to grasp and understand just a fraction of who you are, that we may head out of here in awe and wonder of you. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you look at that list, the first is the image of God. In verse 15, it says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. The first quality that all of us should understand about God is that God is spirit. And so God essentially is invisible to us. It is great in a way that God does not have physical form. In fact, when we start through our Bibles and we start reading, God actually prohibits us from having a physical form that would represent him. So when we turn to Exodus, the second of the commandments is... You shall not make for yourself an image 
in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, when you see this, you've got to ask the question, why is God saying that we should have no images? Isn't it good that we are reminded of who God is? Well, we have no images because as soon as we create an image, we actually constrain who God is to the form of an image. We reduce his grandeur, his power, his majesty in our eyes. So when Israel cast the golden calf, think about that for a moment. All of Israel put all, pulled all their gold and then they bowed down and they worshipped this calf. Tell me, is a calf going to help you when you're sick, especially a statue? You don't even see it moving. Is it going to help you if you uh, have infertility problems as a couple? Is a, a golden calf, well, maybe it might if you've got financial troubles, <laughs> go and cash it in. Is a golden calf going to help you if you're sick? It, it doesn't elicit a lot of confidence, does it? Why? Because any image that we can come up with actually reduces God down to a physical form. And God is so far beyond anything physical that we see or understand. God does not want us to constrain who he is into the form of an image. To constrain God to the form of an idol is not only limiting, but it's also insulting to God. It's almost like our kids when they go off to school and they sketch a little photo and they come back and they say, that's our family. And you've got a stick figure, or maybe they haven't given you a stick figure, they've given you a little bit more substance. It, it, whilst it's your kids and you love them, the image is not really gratifying or encouraging, is it? The word that's used for image here implies a representation or manifestation, which is good because when Christ comes and he lives amongst us, he does give us that sense of who God is. Um, on our coins, every coin that gets minted has Queen Elizabeth on. It's her image. It's maybe not the best of images. Uh, there's been seven different images of the queen on our coins. But it is more the fact that it represents who government is or who she is and her authority over the minting of that. It's a manifestation. So when it says here that Christ is a manifestation of the Father, it gives us a little bit of an insight into who God is in his majesty. It says, Jesus says, anyone that has seen me has seen the Father in John 14. So whilst God is spirit and invisible, his qualities start to be displayed for us a little in the person of Christ. So when Jesus stands on the bow of a ship and he calms the storm, he shows us something of his power over nature. When he has the person who is lame, who has never walked in their life, and he heals them, it shows us God's amazing power even over the human body. 
when he heals the one that's born blind, when he uh, heals so many people with leprosy and diseases being bent over. It shows God's amazing power in that area of our lives. When he then goes and he multiplies the bread and the fish, it shows almost like a metaphysical power that he's able to multiply things that we couldn't even imagine could be multiplied. And then when he stands and he has the prostitute weeping at his feet because of her sin, because of her shame, and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. It shows us his compassion and his mercy. And as we see those images of Christ, we understand that that is who our God is. And our God is unchanging, and so that picture that we have in Jesus enables us to know that that is how God will treat us throughout our lives. He is the exact image of God the Father. He is the one that we pray to and trust in, so that when we feel overwhelmed, and I know when I was in the water down the lake, I was praying to God, Lord, just help me get out of here. I am stuck. I am out of energy. I am wasted. And God steps in. Whether it's a change to the wind, whether it's a, a strengthening of who we are, God allows us to move forward and through that. Number six says that in Jesus, uh, we saw the fullness of God pleased to dwell in him. In 2.9, it says, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Now, at this time that Colossians was written, uh, Paul is actually uh, confronting some false teachers at the time, uh, which were known uh, by the word Gnostic. Uh, they were Gnostics, and they had a very different view of our world and matter and God. There was a separation in their view of uh, who God was in his holiness and then the material world, which they identified as being sinful and corrupt and everything about it. And so for them, the concept of God being connected to the world didn't connect. God was not a part of our world. In fact, the Gnostics had almost like a ladder of manifestations that you would need to climb in order to connect with God. And so Paul says here and rebukes that whole concept and idea and he says, no, God is not this God who is afar off, but he is a God who is here with us, who is a God that is close by. He is not separated from his creation. Points two and three on here are also very similar. The first one of those in verse 15b says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And when we see that word firstborn, we think of our firstborns, don't we? I think of my eldest daughter, Ashley. Uh, she is our firstborn. 
But the word firstborn here doesn't actually connect with being a created being or being the first of many created beings. It's actually a heresy that the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, continue to purport. In fact, in this passage in Colossians, if they ever show you their Bible, uh, you'll see in the front that it listed as a New World translation, which is the Jehovah's Witness English translation, translation of their Bible. And in this passage, they insert the word other six times, which is not there in the original Greek. And they do that because they want to twist its meaning to make Jesus a created being in having a material, manly existence. In Psalm 89 and verse 27, we see again this use of the word firstborn, but here it's David talking about Solomon, his son. He says, I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Now, Solomon was not David's firstborn child. He was not. But here, firstborn is used in a sense of describing rank, of title, of, of uh, describing who and what his position would be. And it's used in that way here of Christ because Jesus was not a created being. Jesus, it says in the second passage in verses 16 and 17, created all things. Now, if you create all things, you cannot then therefore be a created being yourself. Jesus created all things. It says, in him and through him and for him, all creation came into being. And further to that, he actually holds all creation together. Jesus, in other words, is the instrument of creation. He thinks about creation, he planned creation, and then he causes it to be. Now, this again should blow our minds a little bit. And not only does he create all the world around us, as it says here, both uh, visible and invisible, the material universe and the immaterial, but he also creates the angelic beings, the thrones, the powers, the rulers and authorities. Now, as we go into chapter 2 of Colossians, we'll see that the Colossians actually dabbled in angel worship which was another thing that Paul is writing to confront. But he's trying to tell them, why are you worshipping angels when we've got Jesus? He created the angels. He's superior to the angels. He is the firstborn. He is over all creation. This week, in, uh, as I was flicking through Facebook, one of my friends wrote down a little of his testimony and one of the things he testifies to is how he was involved in a little bit of the occult beforehand. And he had an experience where he was lying in bed, and it's an experience that I've heard from a number of other people. And he felt just an enormous weight of pressure on him that he couldn't move as he lay there in bed. And it was almost a suffocating weight. And it was a darkness that he felt coming over him. 
And though he wasn't a Christian and though he, he didn't, uh, wasn't attending a church at the time, something about his upbringing or something in his thoughts told him to call out and to call out for Jesus. And so whilst he's there feeling like he's pinned to his bed with that darkness, with that sense of uh, demonic weight against his body, he calls out and says, Jesus, save me. And it's at that moment that the darkness completely leaves him. And it's gone. Why? Because as we sang in the songs, there is power in the name of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is over all creation. He is in charge of all thrones, powers or dominions. They will submit to him. And so when we go through the Gospels and Jesus sees a man who is possessed by demons, they come to him and they come on knee and they say, we know who you are, that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Have you come to destroy us? And they begged Jesus to leave the man and to go into a herd of pigs. And Jesus gives them permission. They go off. The pigs go down the hill and drown themselves. All very bizarre. But that's the spiritual realm of which often we don't acknowledge or see much of. But Paul writes to the Colossians. And he says to them, don't trust in these angels, trust in Jesus. Jesus is the one that is over all these powers, over all these authorities. He is in charge of our universe. Now, how should that help us as we translate it from Old Testament, New Testament times into today? Well, how many times do we struggle with things going on in our lives? They are things often that are beyond our control. Whether that be a health issue, whether that be circumstances in our workplace, whether that be relational issues. At points we feel like we're at the end of our tether and we should because we are material, we are limited, we are human. But the God that we serve is not. He is beyond all bounds that we understand. He works through circumstances to bring about his purposes. He has the ability to pour out untold blessing into our lives. If only we would trust him and walk with him through life. It says here that all creation holds together through Christ. I heard the story of a group, uh, to a group that was going through uh, an atomic laboratory. And they were explained, it was explained to them how matter was composed of rapidly moving electric particles. Now, I never did physics uh, through science, so forgive me if I explain this incorrectly. But that's how... It was described and the tourists studied models of molecules and they were amazed to learn that matter is made up primarily of space, which is bizarre. Now, during the question period, one visitor asked, if this is the way matter works, 
what holds it all together? Why does it stick next to each other and not all go off in different directions? And for that, the guide had no answer. But the scriptures tell us that Christ not only created all that we see and imagine around us, not only planned it, not only brought it into being, but he also holds it together. He continues and sustains it for his purposes and for our pleasure and enjoyment. The wonder of creation is something that we often feel dwarfed by when we're out in it. One of the things when I first came up to Ipswich that I did was to climb up Mount Flinders. I climbed up White Rock as well. And anyone that's ever gone on a walk up to the top of a mountain, uh, do you remember the feeling that you had as you looked out at the expanse? Now, you may have been to amazing places like the Himalayas or to the Arctic. Uh, You may have been to New Zealand and seen Mount Cook and some of their wonders. You may have even had the privilege of climbing up some of those higher peaks. Uh, This week, uh, we heard of a, a young Aussie that climbed up to Mount Everest. She's only 19. I thought, my goodness, uh, I can't imagine a 19-year-old climbing up Mount Everest. But her mum was 62, and I can't imagine that even more, (laughs) Um, climbing to the top of Mount Everest. But when you look out at that view of the Himalayas that sits behind them, you cannot but feel dwarfed in who we are as small and insignificant in comparison to our great God. It's amazing. Uh, The next couple of points. Uh, Not only is he head of all creation, firstborn over creation, not only is he the God of the universe, but in a smaller way, he's also the head of the church. Now, that's the universal church, which obviously encompasses every local church. Every believer who has placed their trust in Christ becomes a part of God's universal church. I often say to people, when you get amongst people of different denominations, sometimes people like to brag about their denomination or differences. I don't have time for that. I often say to people, I said, do you realize there's only one heaven? (laughs) Trusting in Christ, we're going to be there together. It's, it's not like you have your own heaven or your own space necessarily in heaven. There's lots of jokes about that. But Christ is the head of his church, which comprises all churches who have faith in Jesus. He is the one who gives gifts to us, who strengthens us, who guides, who gives wisdom to us so that we may know him more. It is through Christ that the church is nourished, that the church is cleansed. And so just as you could chop a head off a body and it would die and wither very quickly, so too Christ is our head, the one to whom we look to, the one who is in authority. Whilst men and women can plant churches, can found denominations, 
Christ is the head who is in authority of all churches. And for the false teachers at Colossae, who could never give Christ preeminence or a place of deity, who only saw him as one rung on the ladder, what Paul is saying to them is that no God has been brought near. Christ is not a God who is far away, but a God who is here present, to one to whom we must trust. He is, as it then says in verse 18, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may have supremacy. Christ does reign supreme. Now, as we start to get older and our mortality starts to become more aware for us, this should be something that again gives us great confidence and strength because Christ died... And he is the first who rose again with an immortal body as a demonstration of what that will be like, of that amazing power that he displays so that death has no sting. Just on Thursday, I conducted another funeral and I'm glad I had opportunity to chat with Peter, who was aged 98 Uh, before he died and as I chatted to him I asked him the two core questions that everyone should have an answer to one if you were to die today are you sure you would go to heaven if you are not you should have the fear of death in you and the second question that I asked is that if you did die and you stood before God in heaven and he asked you why should I let you in what would you say to which we must also have an answer. Because if we don't, uh, we're really throwing the dice with our eternity. Jesus came, lived amongst us, died, and has shown that he has the runs on the board to conquer death. As it says in Philippians 2, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has died, he has risen, he has been exalted. But the question is, Who do you see him as? Who do you recognize him as? What place does he have in your life? Because it's only when he has that place and position of God in your life that he's able to accomplish anything in your life, that he's able to change you. It's only as you appeal to him in prayer that he can hear your prayers and answer them and work through you to accomplish his purposes, not only in your life, but in the lives of others around. If Jesus is who he said he was, then he is God, as this passage explains for us over and over again. 
One of my pet peeves that I uh, shared with the foundations class is that I hate it when people pray, God, you know, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. I'm thinking, seriously? Do you not know who he is? Can you not use an adjective? Can you not describe him as all-powerful? Can you not describe him as loving, as compassionate, as merciful, as the firstborn from among the dead, as the one who holds all creation in his hands? And what he has done? Is that what we reduce the sacrifice on the cross to? What you have done? Christ has done so much more, but it's only in that position of God that he can actually bring change. Donald English uh, tells a story, uh, it's a quaint English story, that gives us some perspective in this. In Birmingham, England, uh, there was a department store known as Lewis's. This is it here. Massive big department store, reminds me of Myers. It was a great chain store on one of the main streets and they wanted to extend their store, but right in the way of the extension was a little chapel of Quakers. Now, Quakers are people who trust in Christ, but they don't have structures or liturgy. They all just rock up, and whatever happens when they gather together, that is uh, what happens. Now, the Quakers uh, had this little chapel, and Lewis's, this massive, big monolith of a store sent a letter to the friends uh, meeting house or the Quakers next door and this is what they wrote they said dear sirs we want to extend we wish to extend our premises we see that your building is right in the way we wish therefore to buy your building and to demolish it so that we might expand our store we will pay any price you care to name. If you'll name a price, we will settle this matter as quickly as possible. Yours sincerely. Well, they got a letter back by reply, which said, Dear Sirs, we in the Friends Meeting House note the desire of Lewis's to extend. We observe, observe that our building is right in your way. We would point out, however, that we have been on our site somewhat longer than you have been on yours, and we are determined to stay where we are. We are so determined to stay where we are that we will happily buy Lewis's. If, therefore, you would like to name a suitable price, we will settle the matter as quickly as possible. Signed, Cadbury. That's John Cadbury, founder of Cadbury Schweppes, the chocolate monolith, uh, one of the biggest uh, manufacturers of candy around the world, uh, which originated in Birmingham, England. And the, Qua and the Cadburys were Quakers who went to the church, and no doubt they could have bought Lewis's multiple times over. What is the point of the story? The point of the story, it's not about the size that matters, but it's about the person who stands behind what is going on. The Cadburys 
had uh, enormous wealth. And being members of that small little church had no problem with authority, had no problem with resources to overcome uh, or to defend themselves against this monolith of an organization which was coming against them. And so that's the moral of the story. When we stand, we stand as these small material beings who have little ability to control our circumstances, to stop the rain, to uh, bring on rain when we need it when we're in drought. Uh, We have little ability to do any of that. Even when it comes to our health, we can't control our health. When it comes to our employment, often that is out of our control. And even in relationships, uh, we often struggle and we're at odds and we feel that there is nothing we can do there either. But when Christ is there with us, when he stands behind us, there is no end to what can be accomplished. There is no uh, limit to what God is able to do, if only we would trust in him. The last point of the seven is that Christ is the reconciler of all things. And if you're at home watching, I would encourage you to have your communion elements out. And if our helpers or stewards could please help with the communion elements now and distribute those to people, that would be helpful. In verse 20, it says, And through him, that is through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is, through Jesus, the result of Christ's death was not just that he dies and he's able to demonstrate authority over death, but his death has a redemptive work that it accomplishes in us. And this too is enormous for us because it touches on an area that none of us are able to control. We are all fallen people. But here, God's purpose was to present us wholly in his sight through Christ. Now, that may be judiciously, judicially perfect in a believer's person or, or spiritually perfect in our condition. Ultimately, God envisions both of these whereby we as believers who have fallen, who have made mistakes, who have sinned in so many different ways in our past, in our near past, in our present, whether by acts of commission that we have done purposely, maliciously, or whether by acts of omission where we have seen a person in need and we have refused to step out to help or to do something like that. The purpose of reconciliation here is personal holiness, that God would take the sinfulness in our lives and that he would wipe it clean, that he would take off all the mud and the mire, all the past mistakes that we have done, And that he would allow us to stand before him uh, 
holy in his sight. In verse 21, 22, it says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he, that is Jesus, has reconciled, well, he, that is God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. The purpose of reconciliation is to bring us back to God. We can't come back to God being sinful. We can't exist in his presence in a state of sinfulness. We must be cleansed to stand in his presence because he is holy. Everything that is impure is destroyed in his presence. When it says here, without blemish, it means unblameable. The word was used for temple sacrifices, which you couldn't bring the lame sheep or the injured sheep or the one that was diseased or sick. It had to be in perfect condition to be sacrificed. And that's what he does to us. He cleanses us so that each one of us is without blemish. He then takes everything that we have done and removes it from our record. It is the great eraser where he rubs out every mistake. Now in the scriptures, Satan is the great accuser. He likes to hurl charges. He likes to hurl insults. But here, God will not accept them. You know what? People can hurl insults against us. But before God, we have been cleansed. The important thing here is not how we look in our own sight. It's not how we look in the sight of others. But it's how we look in God's sight. And here we know God has cleansed us and has made us new. So often we struggle with the guilt of our past and the mistakes that we have made. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 18, it says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. Not reconciled himself to us, but us to him. In other words, we have been made pure and perfect in his sight. So whilst the Gnostics would like everyone to believe that we are sinful, that our past will weigh us down, there's nothing we can do and we have to jump through various different hoops. Paul tells the believers, you have been perfected in Christ. You don't need to go anywhere else. It is in Jesus that we have it all. There are two elements that you have before you. One is the bread, which reminds us of Christ's body, which has been sacrificed for us. Please take it now in remembrance of Christ.
cup that we have is a reminder of the new covenant promise. The promise that for all who put their faith in Jesus, nothing of works, but all by grace, that we will be forgiven and cleansed. So let's take that cup in faith and trust that Jesus has done it all. Please take and drink. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great hymn that we are able to enjoy, that we benefit from and are blessed by, because it tells us so much more about our Saviour Jesus, that Jesus is the perfect image, representation of who you are, that we can know you because we have seen Jesus. We have seen your power, we have seen your mercy, and we have seen your grace. We thank you, Father, also for your love and compassion that is poured out on us as your creation. That through Jesus, all things were created. They were created by his will and for him. And they are sustained and upheld by him. We thank you that it is this Jesus, King Jesus, who is the head of our church, who strengthens and lifts up our church, who guides and directs, who blesses and brings about fruitfulness, who gifts his people. We thank you that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead that we need, need not fear the end of this mortal life because Jesus has the runs on the board, having been risen in an immortal body and returned to show us what that was like. And we thank you. We thank you that Jesus reconciles us to you that we have been cleansed, that we have been made new. We are a new creation. All the failures of the past are gone. All the mistakes and sins of the past are wiped clean. But we stand pure and holy in your sight. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are loved by you. And it is overwhelming to us. Help us not to be overwhelmed by our circumstances and our fears this week, but overwhelmed by your love and your grace shown into our lives. And we pray this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening today. If you live locally here in the Ipswich region, we would love to invite you to come and join us in person uh, here at one of our Sunday gatherings at Whitehill. For more information on our services or our ministries, head on over to our website at whitehill.church. If you're interested also in taking next steps in your relationship with Jesus, please also at our website, hit the connect button and let us know where you're at. We would love to catch up with you either over a coffee or on a phone call to chat with you about where you're at. 
We hope you've enjoyed watching this message and we pray that God would continue to bless you as you seek to seek Him in your daily life. God bless.